Welcome back, Rebels. Here we go, another bonus. We've got four weeks of bonus for you here. Yeah, so for the next four weeks, we are bringing you a series of podcasts in partnership with the Good Business Festival, which is something that we're really excited about. What is Good Business, David? What is Good Business? Ah, that's a different question to what is the Good uh, Business Festival. Um, good Business is, well, so so to quote them is... Um, the, the kind of tagline of their event is be purposeful. Basically, they are bringing together, it's a huge event. We're not being paid for this. This is just something that we wanted to be a part of because we think it's bloody brilliant and we think that everyone yeah. listening is going to get a lot from from being involved with this festival. Um, and given that it's online, it was going to be in Liverpool. Um, but given that Act One is completely online, this gives like any of our listeners anywhere in the world the chance to become involved with this which we think is brilliant i think what's really great about it as well is the fact that this first act one is actually free which means that anyone can go on around the world at no cost and listen to some absolutely amazing speakers talk about good business yeah definitely but yeah so the the tagline of the event is is be purposeful and i think that that good business can make you money and needs to make you money because if you're going to go on and do great things in the world that needs to be a part of your business plan um, because not making any money means your business is not going to go very far Um, but being purposeful means that as well as as making money for yourself you can also actually benefit society in some way and no matter what your business I think that by coming to these these online events and talks and classes and everything that they've got going on with the Good Business Festival you're going to be able to see how you can how your business would slot into that and how you can perhaps be more purposeful in what you're doing going forward i think businesses that will succeed will be good businesses i think the days of people using bad supply chains and and not being sustainable i think those businesses like that aren't going to last much longer i think there's a ma- massive shift now in the world to being more purposeful and having business that actually benefits the planet And I think going forward, a lot of businesses are going to shift towards that. So I think it's a great festival and a great chance to actually consume some content and like learn from these people who are experts at this. Yeah, so the the festival is um, split up into two acts. So Act 1 starts on the 8th of October and during Act 1, that's where everything's going to be kind of held online. There's also going to be Act 2, which is coming up in March next year, which hopefully is going to be in person. Um, And I think that's probably something that we'll be a part of um, and that'll be in Liverpool. Um, But for now, 8th of October is the date to mark down in your calendars. And um, for all of the information that's kind of a better description than us just rambling um, head over to thegoodbusinessfestival.com where you can sign up to their newsletter and be alerted to everything that's going to be going on um yeah so in this episode we talked to wayne hemingway founder of hemingway designs the organizers of this event yes indeed wayne hemingway is a designer and an entrepreneur wayne is the founder of fashion label red or dead which he built with his wife geraldine and later sold And the next business was Hemingway Design, uh, which works on housing design, interior, office, workplace design, and even event planning. Uh, And as we get into in the episode, all of Wayne's ventures have been built around a strong purpose and meeting of societal needs. If you haven't come together and, and shown that you care about people rather than just care about the bottom line and care, and care about shareholder value, then, then you're going to get called out. Hi, Wayne. How are you? Good. Yeah. Yeah, good. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I think nowadays for it, it's quite difficult when people see 
the the overall arching thing of people's career to realize like how far they've come and with you you've definitely come a long way your your career started am i right on camden market yeah so it was back in 1979 i um i moved from blackburn to london and um the first thing I did is set up a band like you should do when you're that age. And, um, <laughs> and, um, and anybody that's been in a band will know that it costs money. It's at rehearsal studios, buying equipment. And I, we, we moved down with 50 quid each in our pocket, my, me, and, me and my future wife. And uh, it was kept in a, in a tin on the mantelpiece. And uh, I, the, the rent was due on the Monday. And I foolishly, well, probably not really in, in hindsight, but as, as a, young, a young lad would do, dipped into that money to buy a saxophone, which I never learned to play at all, of any, <laughs> of any, of any note, uh, excuse the pun, and, um, and, and to pay for some rehearsal studios. And the, the rest of the band was supposed to pay me back for the rehearsal studio rental, but they were all um, on the dole and they all hadn't turned up at job interviews. Uh, and, and so they couldn't pay me back. So we were stuck with either we were going to be kicked out of our rented flat in northwest London or we had to get some money together to um, to pay the rent. And we emptied our wardrobe uh, onto, Cam- onto Camden Market. We'd, my wife, had, future wife, had seen, Geraldine had seen that there was in, t- in Time Out magazine that for, for £6 rent, you could rent a stall. So we, we that's what we did. And we took 300-odd quid that weekend. And, and that was before then... We'd never have imagined that we would be designers, entrepreneurs, all the things that we are, I suppose. And it was just that I think you you always get some things that happen in your life that that you never expected. And I, and and I'm, we must have been just in the right state of mind and position and age and everything to and and up and and yeah, just at the right stage of life to be able to to make the most of it. And what does the second trip to the market look like? It was very different. The, ne- the next, the next, we went there on a Saturday, and um, and we took a hundred odd quid that day, which means that we'd we'd got more money, we'd, we'd had more money in our pockets than we'd ended up in leaving home with and and, and going yeah. going to London with. So that we then thought, blooming neck, um, let's get there tomorrow morning. And we, but this, we'd been jealous all day because we'd been at the back of the market. On think of the old book street market next to the electric ballroom in, 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 in Camden, we were towards the back yeah. of that. And we were seeing people at the front and thinking, I wish we were at the front getting all those thousands of people walking past. We'd have, we'd have sold even more. So we got there at four in the morning. We got the, the night bus, the N18 down the Harrow road, laden up with these bags, these Chinese laundry bags, then 50 P laundry bags. You get two for a pound in Poundland, yeah. and lo- loaded up with a combination of my old punk clothes so I'd always worn second-hand clothes, and Geraldine and Geraldine had always made her own clothes. So we we got there to queue up to get the front stall. We got the front stall. We took you know double the amount of money by getting the front stall, and that we'd learnt our first you know our first big big thing of retail. You know, position is everything, and location is everything. So you learn. It was amazing. We were learning literally you know on the job straight straight away, and um, and from then on we just made sure that we were the first there. You know, to this day, I get up at four o'clock, you know, between four and four thirty every day, because that's what we had to do to get the first stall on the market. I think something very interesting you said earlier is, is that you hadn't had any sort of like entrepreneurial, because I, I believe that there's this myth that people say like, oh, you're either born an entrepreneur or not. And I, I, I really disagree with that because I think anyone at any age can start something and, and the lessons that that will teach them along the way can lead them to the path of entrepreneurship. Yeah, I, I agree as well. And you don't know, 
you know, you don't know where entrepreneurship comes from. I mean, we were obviously, who'd have thought? I, I, I grew up from the age of 13 going to nightclubs. I was, you know, that's my mum, single parent family, and my mum just, she was always a nightclubber and just encouraged me to go out and dance. And so I didn't stand in my way of doing that. But I always wore, I was from a household from my nan and my mum as well, who always made their own clothes. So I was always able to buy secondhand clothes and do a bit with them. You know, when punk came along, instead of going to, well, not not that I would have ever been able to afford to go down to London and go to World's End and Vivian Westwood, but, you know, making your own bondage trousers from secondhand clothes and all of that. But I, I never knew that that what I learned from that could could be the start the start of my career and the same for for Geraldine she you know she from a poor family but she a family that made clothes and she would make clothes for she was, she's one of five five girls and she would make clothes for her sisters and 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 again that skill and they, the, the fact of being able to recognize secondhand clothes because if you think go back to 1980 and 1981 you know that wearing secondhand clothes was was you were very unusual um you know, it, it was a bit of a we- a bit of a right. weird thing to do, and it was a very small amount of people who were who were doing it and and being able to do it and and, and look cool. And yet, I'd been doing it from the age of thirteen, partly out of necessity, partly out of the family that I came from, and I had these skills that suddenly were it ex- the, the wearing of secondhand clothes absolutely exploded on a scale. You know, now people think, oh, everybody wears secondhand clothes. Everybody knows how to shop at, you know, shop at Depop or eBay or go to a vintage market or go to a vintage yeah. sale, all of that lot. But back then the word vintage didn't exist apart from vintage cars and vintage wine. There was no such thing as vintage clothes. You wore secondhand clothes. But I, you know, just by circumstance, um, I, 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 you know, seven years of experience um, of of wearing it, and and I, I was probably, a, a, you know, an understand. I had an understanding of it, and then, and then when you have people like your nan, you know, when my nan started to say, "Well, take my fifties dresses to sell on the market," and my mum saying, "Take my sixties dresses," and then when my nan's asking the rag and bone man, I better explain what do you two young. Young young men know what a rag and bone man is. <laughs> I do, yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Should I do? I need to explain what a rag and bone man is, just in case. Let's go for it. Yeah. So when my nan starts starts tapping up the rag and bone man, who is a man that walks down the street where her house was in Morecambe with a a, a horse and a cart, shouting rag bone, rag bone, and he's ask, he's asking for bring out your rags, which are your clothes and, and bring out, bring out your bones, which, which is your bone, your bone China. Uh, and, you know, bring out basically the stuff that you don't need anymore. And he would take it and sell it elsewhere. So she, she asked him, where, do, where do you take your rags? And we found out about these things called rag yards or shoddy and mungo yards. They were called, um, which, which were, which is where the word shoddy clothing comes from. And he said, I take them oh. to Dewsbury. Uh, where where I get where I weigh them in, weigh weigh all these clothes in, and where they get recycled. So he told us where they were. Off we went, me and Geraldine, to these basically recycling yards, which they were as they were, they were called Mungo and Shoddy yards, and where we would be the only ones, the only people there buying up what what would eventually be called vintage clothes. We were buying nineteen thirties dresses, brilliant fifties suits, all sorts of stuff. And we were the only ones. And we were number one, we were learning about social justice because it it the people working in 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 these basically old old factories were 
really, really poor. They were living from hand to mouth. But we were doubling their wages by saying, if you keep one of those 50s printed dresses aside, we'd leave them examples. If you keep one of those 50s printed dresses aside for us, we'll give you a pound or two. And, and suddenly we were like heroes there. And they were finding, we were filling two big Luton transit vans a week of stuff and bringing them back down to London. Um, we, we, we would take them all straight to a dry cleaner who would, um, who would then sort, sort them out into what needed pressing and what was so filthy it needed cleaning. Uh, and then they go straight back in the van to Camden. And we, we, we got to the point really, really quickly where we were taking, it was always a race between me and Jodine. Who, who was the first one to get to £5,000 in take? Imagine that. We were taking 10 grand a weekend on Camden Market. Oh, in God. 1981. Yeah, by 1981, we were certainly up to that kind of money, yeah. That's incredible. You know, it, it is incredible. And, and then parallel to that, Jodine, uh, you know, some people who listen to this may have heard, may have heard of Cam, Cam, um, Kensington Market, which was a, an indoor market on Kensington High Street. Jodine took a stall in there, um, took her sewing machine in, made her first collection of clothing. We didn't call it Red or Dead in, in, in the first days. It didn't, she didn't have any labels in it. Got an order from Macy's New York, uh, the story behind that I won't tell on this, but it's an amazing story in its own right. And how we, from there, we we ended up uh, my mum packing in her job, working in a pub as a barmaid in Blackburn, and opening a factory with us with us funding it from the money from Camden to buy a load of machines from Exchange and Mart, which was like the equivalent of what eBay is today. Um, yeah. and 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 employing a lot of you know women in, from Blackburn uh, and starting this factory up. And, and coming up with a, a, a label on the hoof called Red or Dead, coming up with that, you know, coming up with that and, and supplying Macy's New York with an order for like 1600 pieces from, you know, and, and we just did it all with no training. We never, we never borrowed any money. We, we never had an accountant or a business plan. Um, and, and it was all done from young people that were, that we'd met in clubs and on Camden Market. And, and my mum and her mates in Blackburn. I think what's really interesting there is the fact that when David kind of talks about how you, no one's born an entrepreneur, I think what does make an entrepreneur is someone who can spot what works and analyse what works and then really excel at that. For the fact that your first day on the market, you were like, okay, well, this isn't the best spot to be. I need to be there. And within the second day, you'd already got up, made that sacrifice to lose a bit of sleep that night to get to that location to sell more. And it's almost like everything you've done, you've just kind of, Look, looked at what's happening and looked at the market and said, this is working. Most of it is common sense. I think the best thing that anybody can, can have is common sense. And, and that probably is just clear, having a, a, a clear mind that, that, is, that, thinks, that, that thinks about things. And that's what we've always done. I mean, I think there's a real advantage sometimes of, of having no fear. You know, we had nothing to lose. We're, we, we were from, not, you know, from, backgrounds where it wasn't expected for us to do this there was no there was no pressure we, you know the first you know I was the first to own a car we uh, you know in our family that um we were the first first to leave home to go to London and, and all of that kind of stuff and it just there was it it was just there was just no pressure on us and and I think that that really really helps and and also it's that thing of when you're young and it just felt like anything was possible, but it, it, it didn't feel, it just felt natural. In the same way as we had kids very, very young, I, 
and, and maybe it was a northerner in us. You know, we'd by the, I don't know how we'd had about three kids before we were thirty. We'd so we, yeah, we certainly had three kids before we were thirty, and we were doing all and every, and yet running the business and doing all of this, and it just felt like life. Do you think people put too much pressure on themselves today? Yeah, I do. I'd, and we we have never. I think that's partly because when you come from nothing, um, the fear of failure is probably not not a lot because your peers, everybody, you, you've got no peer pressure from people. I should imagine it's quite difficult if you if you go to a, a, a posh school and everybody's, you know, some people are going into the city and some people are going to become lawyers and you and you want to try something like we tried. There might be a bit of fear because you might be you might fear that. Actually, should I have gone down that route and gone and been a junior manager at Marks and Spencers, or you know, all of that kind of stuff? But because of our back, nothing was expected of us. You know, n- nobody in our family had a- a- achieved anything other than just to hold down, you know, jobs to bring a- to bring a wage home. Um, I think that helped us an awful lot, and it felt like this adv- adventure where you where your family were really behind you because it was like. Oh, Wayne's gone to London and he's going to be a millionaire, and and Geraldine's gone to London <laughs> and she's gonna she's gonna be a famous fashion designer, and your parents, you know, are all so and your and your your families are all so excited about it, and I think that family support from from the excitement around that somebody within the family was breaking out of what what the norm was was a fantastic support, just a fantastic sense of just pride for us as well. You mentioned that that a lot of it was common sense, but I think also a lot of it is going against the grain. And obviously you have like lots of inspiration from music and punk music specifically. Like how important has kind of rebellion and doing the the opposite to the way everyone else was going? How important has that been? Well, as you get older, you start to analyse this. And we were actually talking about this this weekend about because I watched a film called The the Nightingale, which was a really hard-hitting story about um, brutal British colonisation of, of Australia. And I, I always, I didn't, when I was young, because I'm half, um, well, First Nation, but not everybody will understand what First Nation means. So in, in old money, uh, um, American American Indian. So uh, I'm, because I'm half in, in very old money, Native American Indian, but you can't really say the word native anymore. But but I, I suppose I can because I am one. Um, so mm-hmm. because because of that, I grew up always, you know, watching cowboys. And you know, my my generation, the, the film of choice was to watch a cowboy and Indian film. And, and Saturday morning cinema was was all about that. And I used to get very upset about the Indians, you know. Losing and was all you know, which they always seem to do in every yeah. film. But I was all, always up for the Indians, and and I think also because of the political leanings of both our families, um, we were always we were always up up for the underdog, and I think that has that has helped us. Um, number one in our in what we stand for, because we've always you know, Red or Dead, our first business really did stand for something. You know, we, 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 all the way through, we were political, you know, simple things like manufacturing in prisons. When, when we knew that, you know, you talk about going against the grain, we, we've never been frightened to go against the grain. And, and I think punk came at the right age for me. It came at fifth, in 76, I was 15 when, when it, when it, when it hit and it, and it, you know, it didn't just hit London, it hit the North pretty quickly. Um, 
and and it felt like I remember you know I was still at school then I hadn't done my my O levels my G- GCSEs when 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 punk hit and I remember you know there was two of us within the school that, that went for punk in a big way. So it was, it was like cutting your tie down the middle, making it thinner, you know, your, your trousers, making them as, you know, making them really narrow at the bottom and, and wearing, you know, wearing brothel creepers, you know, big 1950s crepe, crepe shoes to school and, 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 and just getting in trouble, but then got doing it, doing, finding to subvert the school uniform in another way. It was constant. And, and you realize, and then you realize that, you, you know, you form bands, your friends form bands. You, you don't need, it, it was, it was, it was genuinely a time where it felt like you could just have a go. And, 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 and it didn't matter how rough you sounded, how, how rubbish you were, but, but it, it was a time of, and, and you, you know, you did your hand, you, you did your hand drawn flyers for your band. You didn't. You, it was the birth of DIY culture, wasn't it? Yeah, I think there was some DIY culture in, in, in you know, in in psychedelic and hippie times. When you look back at the posters mm. from that, but this this felt like this felt like it felt even though I think in London it wasn't quite as you know it, it didn't totally come from a working class feel. In, in Blackburn, it did. It felt like it it felt like there was something here for working class people who had a bit of gumption about them to to really get get hold of. Um, in a similar way, but I'd also been lucky enough to, to grow up through Northern Soul, and that 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 wasn't that dissimilar, you know. In, in not in terms of its aggression, you know, it was, it was, but it was protest music that we danced to. We danced to black protest music, and and and, and fashion and a DIY fashion was was a big part of that. So again, that was I was lucky to, to for that to happen at an age between thirteen and sixteen, which are which are really formative years, and and, and that. And then, you, then you've got your family as well, who are you know um, political and and wanting change. The, 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 the ingredients were there. I think what's it really interesting about punk as well is the fact that it is it's not perfect. It's kind of raw, and it's kind of you can you don't. There's not this level, this huge bar you have to hit for it to be amazing. Like to make a poster, you can hand draw in. It doesn't have to be perfectly formed letters like the music doesn't have to be sang you don't have to hit every single note everything is a bit more raw so i suppose the barrier to entry there you don't feel like oh i'm not good enough it's just there's such a high level of perfection you can just be yourself you can just throw yourself into it yeah and, and we've done that all, all the way through you know when you think that you know we went on you know red or dead became an international label and and we'd, we'd got no training in fashion and, and nobody in the company, we, nobody came from a fashion background. We had 300 and odd, we had 300 and odd staff in the end, you know, and there might've been the odd pattern cutter through the years who'd learned how to pattern cut. But in general, it was, this was a group of young clubby people who knew what people wanted to wear and we'd find a way of doing it. And we'd find a way of supplying Japan and open, we, we opened, we had shops in Japan, Toronto, you know, and none of us could speak the language. None of us knew about export, but we found we found ways because we wanted to. And it's very similar to when we started to to design housing uh, in 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 the year two thousand. And you know, neither myself and Jodie would ever call ourselves architects. And we got criticised. And when we ended up doing one of Britain's largest housing developments, and it started to win awards, there was some real uh, snidey stuff 
heading our way. There was loads of snidey stuff in the fashion industry, actually. Even though, you know, Vivian Westwood didn't go to art college before she started World's End. Paul Smith wanted to be a professional cyclist and didn't go to, you know, didn't study study design. There, there was a real sniffiness about, about, and there can be a real, you know, snarkiness about it. And the same was when we started to do housing. You know, they were saying, well, they're not, they're not architects. How can it? Well, and we'd just say to them, well, actually, we've lived in houses uh, by the time we started to do housing, was I, I was 39 years old. And I said, well, I've lived in housing for 39 years. If I don't know what they're supposed to be like by then, then when am I, when am I yeah. going to learn? You know, and, and you bring in the, we've all, you know, with that, we had to bring in the structural engineers and the, and, and the architects to make sure that the, the house stood up. But we still knew what, it, what a housing estate should be like as opposed to the shit that, ha- that, 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 that some architects were delivering, you know, which we felt we could do better. Yeah, so it's understanding the customer, isn't it? Yeah, and it's it's understanding us. You know, we we've always, you know, what we've never done is step out of, and that, and this is this has probably been very probably the most sensible thing we've done. We've never stepped out of our background and and our family in terms of if we've designed houses, it's not for some. You know, we've not desi- we're not designing for a client like Roman Abramovich or you know or, yeah. or some celebrity or a footballer or something like that. We're, we're designing how we, the homes that we design are designed for, uh, you know, sister-in-law, sister, brother, cousin. You know, they're they're for us. They're for they're they're, they're for where we're from, and 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 it's been the set. Our clothing, you know, wasn't wasn't. Yes, it was worn by really famous people, but it was it was it was aimed at, at, at the people we went clubbing with. Nobody else. Yeah. Nobody else. We never thought of anything else other than. Will our clubbing mates wear this? That's quite a good bar to have. Yeah, just like like always asking that question. I suppose it, it keeps you true to your your sort of core principles. Is like, would X Y Z person would would they wear this? And then that's just if you ask yourself that for each outfit. Well, it it also makes it way easier because you know we we'd, we'd spent decades and decades living with these people, growing up with these people, going out with these people, you know, going on holiday with these people. If you're if you're designing for people you know, it's bound to be easier, you know. And we've talked about that, and we've, but also because I think we have remained pretty grounded, you know. And in so in in so many ways, we've 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 not, you know, we have got money. Of course, we've got money, but we don't live the rich life, and we don't go around, you know, like Philip Green or something like that, you know. We so it, it, it makes total sense. It makes it easier to be that way because you know your market, but, but it, and it also helps with your. The, it also helps if you're true to yourself. It helps to be able you can market yourself better that way as well. Mm. I don't have to think twice in an interview about oh should I say this or should I say I just have to say what because I'm just doing what we do. I'm just talking about what we do and, and what we are like. Yeah, I think I think that's so that's so important, especially when it comes to interviews, it's like, it's like if you've got a podcast or whatever, if like, if you make content for the internet nowadays, you can't mask who you are because eventually it will slip because during hundreds of hours of conversations, if me and Adam were pretending to be someone else, you would, you would have found out by now because it's just, it's just not possible to keep up that facade. And it's funny how prevalent that is in today's internet culture of, of people um, putting out these, these pretend, personas that actually are aren't real and i I, because you can kind of spot it a mile away it's 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 quite 
it's quite transparent when you do spot one. Yeah, I agree. And you spot it all the time. And we've been through it all our lives, especially in, n- none more so than in the fashion industry. It was full of it. You mentioned the decision to uh, work with prisons. What, what did you actually do with, with prisons for Red or Death? We wanted to do our first um, workwear, workwear stroke denim range. And we, we'd no experience, like I said, in design. So we researched it and we worked, we, we researched that, you know, kind of workwear and, and denim really came out of the American prison system. And it was initially, you know, made by prisoners for prisoners to, when they were out on, on the chain gang breaking rocks. And, the, and then we read about this, that the, the, they still made workwear in prisons in America, but there was a real, um, split between the kind of democratic thinking and and republican thinking about whether you should just lock people up and throw away the key and give nobody the chance to do anything or or the kind of more liberal view that if you if you um if you give somebody something to think about and, and 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 a purpose in life they're less likely to to go off the rails so we agreed with that, you know, and so we thought, well, I wonder, wonder if we could make our, our first collection in, in, in a UK prison. Anyway, we found the only prison that was capable of it was um, Full Sutton Prison in York. And, and they and, and, and so we we went there, we, 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 did, we did all the sampling and then we, there was some publicity around it. We, we, we're always been good at marketing in that respect. So we started to talk about it, you know, long before there was anything on, there was not long before the Internet, this. So we started to talk about it and get it out there. And this fabric supplier came to us and said, we've got this new fabric and we think it'll be perfect for, for, for your uh, workwear range. And it's made from hemp. And we got talking and we thought, this is brilliant because the history of workwear was also wrapped up in people like, you know, James Dean and, and, and counterculture and, and all of that. And hemp, obviously, uh, linked to cannabis, even though it's a completely different, you know, that you you, you can't smoke um, uh, fabric on a roll. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be a bloody big spliff that, wouldn't it? Like uh, 60, <laughs> 60, 60, 60 inches wide and, uh, and, and, that, and that thick. <laughs> but anyway, so... We, we, we thought this is great. This is another bit of, you know, we're making clothing out of hemp. It's being made in a prison. There's really good marketing going to be from this. Anyway, got out Daily Mail and others that we were sneaking cannabis on a roll into, into, a, <laughs> into a prison. We got, we were worried sick. They were doorstepping us. And I thought, oh, have we really messed up here? Um, and anyway, we got the science. We had to get it all tested. It had already been tested anyway by the fabric supplier, of course. We got it all tested and it was, um, it was completely spurious, you know, it, it was two separate complete processes and you couldn't smoke, you know, it would, you couldn't smoke this fabric. So we were able to go to the Guardian who wrote a really good piece about it. I mean, and, and they love to have an attack on the Daily Mail, as you know, uh, <laughs> and it, and it got, and, and it just, our, our sales just went boom like that because it was like us doing the right thing for our customers and, you know, being, you know, sus- Thinking about society and, and thinking about purpose, we didn't use those words. Like, we didn't use the word purpose back then. Being purposeful, as you would as you would say today, um, but also being cheeky uh, and 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 giving ourselves something to really market to. And, and we did that all the way through Red or Dead. Think things like that. It was that combination of cheeky, uh, socially aware, purposeful, and doing things that we knew. Um, certain parts of the media and the public wouldn't like because you can't be things you can't be all things to all people you know we've never we actually we know we know that we can't you know 
you, you, the taste is so wide that we've always never, we've, that's another thing that's really important, I think, is realizing that you can't please everybody. And, yeah. and, and we, we, we know that and are not afraid, to, we're not afraid to, to, to upset as long as it's not, you know, illegal or, you know, or harming anybody. If it's somebody's views and we don't agree with them politically, we'll, have, we'll, we'll go right against them. Yeah, I was DMing with someone yesterday. They, they reached out to our Instagram account and was asking some advice and they, they've started a streetwear brand. And one of the things he said in the DM was, I, I really think that this brand could appeal to everyone. And that was kind of the first thing that I went back with is, is like, yeah, if you try and please everyone, then you'll, you'll please no one. And you need to pick your, your sole client and, and market towards them rather than trying to hit this wide. I'm just trying to think, is there a brand that pleases everybody? Baked beans, Heinz baked beans. There, must, there will be something out there, won't there? Yeah, so it's anything that's kind of seen as like a household name, I suppose, that like, like Fairy Liquid, for example. I imagine yeah, it won't, like- that won't because it's not as sustainable as Ecova, is it? Yeah, there's always going to be, it's between nothing that pleases everyone, water. <laughs> it's not a brand though, is it? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good thing that you'll have, you'll have to put it out there to your, to, there must be some, there must be something, some product, some but, brand. But I feel like that's the way society works is as soon as most people like one thing, like pop music, for example, most people like pop music, but there'll always be people who don't want to be the same as everyone else. Yeah. So they'll go and create something or form something that is different so they can feel unique, so they can feel different. Like it happens, yeah, with music all the time. And I feel like even with someone like Apple, there's always like, if you go on like a YouTube comment thing of like any Apple products, there's like an Android Apple battle constantly like, oh, PC's better or this Apple thing's better. Oh no, that's a waste of money. There's always people who like to, feel unique and have a voice so i think no matter how good a product could be like if you look at the fact that people in america are kind of campaigning about not wearing face masks and it's like that's something that's scientifically proven to reduce people dying but people are just like no i'm i'm not going to be told what to do i'm just going to go for it and just do whatever i want yeah you can't be all things to all all people can you Unless you're, unless you're a baked bean. Yeah. <laughs> Over the past few weeks, we've had uh, some communication back and forth with your team um, of, of brilliant people. How at Hemingway Design do you, um, do you kind of align your team around the goals of the company? Well, there are a lot of good people out there and there are a lot of young people who, are, um, who want to do the right thing with their careers and, and, and make a difference. And and so I, we don't really struggle to find people, and and obviously when you when you um, when you're vocal and you and you you do media and and you know, you you're in the public eye to an extent, then people know about you and they graduate t- towards you. So, but the 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 thing that we never do is never look at anybody's qualifications, and we just look at we always look at that what they are as a person, and um, and there are a lot of good people out there. I mean, I wish you know it's that kind of balance between becoming sometimes i wish we could just become so so big that we could employ hundreds and hundreds of 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 amazing people but then you end up then with red or dead we became so big that we lost that human touch to an extent and we were ready to sell it because it had lost that family when I say family, I don't mean the word Hemingway. I mean the, the family of people doing something together, going out clubbing together, feeling. So it's a difficult, it's a difficult one. That work like Hemingway Design now, we are, you know, we we could expand 
pretty radically, but well, I wouldn't be doing it. It would be the younger generations of, of people coming through. But we all we are we are genuinely fearful of becoming the, then a, a design agency that loses its soul. So how do you keep that? Well, you keep it by good leadership and by a whole team who want it, and also by making sure that you choose the projects that that are not taking you off in a direction that people question internally. Are we doing the thing here that we really want to do? Yeah. So you you really do it by turning a lot of work down. I would say you know which we do. You know we genuinely do. And how do you have that kind of mindset of like, well, if I turn this down now, what if something else doesn't come through? Well, we, we are genuinely lucky in that respect, in that because we've never borrowed any money, and because our office is in a building that we own, we can take the kind of risks that not everybody can take, um, and that's you know partly because the business has been. Well, it's forty years. It's a long time now, you know, and and you see, you've got embedded. We've got embedded reserves, as they call it, in business, you know, um, which is rare. So I know you've said that like purpose and value should always be at the core of any business. But how do you how do you balance that with actually making money? Well, that's that's all. You know, that is the million dollar question where we're talking about money. But I do believe that it's becoming easier. It's, I think it's been. So I've got, I've got friends who have been purpose and values led all their life. My a good friend called Safia Minia set up People Tree, which, you know, was, uh, was one of the first, um, ethic, you know, ethically uh, fashion company that was completely ethical in all its sourcing and all, and all its thinking. And, you know, and it's been a struggle and, you know, she's, you know, it's been a struggle for her and, and, and the whole business because, 20 years ago, I reckon it's, as a guess, I reckon it's about 20 years ago. The world probably wasn't ready on, on a scale, on a scale with enough people who, who cared about the provenance of where things come from. But 20 years on, the world is a very different place. And the word, remember the word for my generation, the word sustainability and the idea of um, global warming it it wasn't there you know it wasn't something you ever mm. talked about uh, and but now and we've got another generation just think of what the greta generation you know she just think about oh, how old is she now 17 whatever 18 i don't know but just think about that very young generation who've grown up i'd be, I'd be surprised if from whatever background you're from if you don't know who greta thunberg is and you're and you're of her age you know she there's, there'll be as many people know her at her age as know who Boris Johnson is or Donald Trump is, you know. Yeah. And they're going to grow up following her, listening to her. She's not going to change. She's not going to change her tone. She's not going to suddenly become twenty-one and and uh, and 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 forget about what what she stands for. I hope not, and I doubt it very, very much. Start throwing trash at the streets and yeah, yeah. Throwing yeah. Hands <laughs> yeah. Off of yeah. It's just not going to happen, is it? But but this that that is a there was I had no heroes like that the first one that i had was anita roddick from body shop and by then i was a how old would i have been then i'd have been mid, by the time she was setting famous i'd have been late 20s going on for 30 but today's young kids are growing up with heroes who who are purpose-led yeah. and thinking about society and thinking about the environment this is enormous this is massive if we don't change things, if the world doesn't start changing for the better now, 
If you can't be a purposeful business now and make a go of it, whenever are you going to do it? So I think, and I actually don't think now you cannot have some, it's very hard to think that somebody could come along and, and set up the new version of Topshop um, and for it not to, to have some form or the new version of Primark or whatever. So even on that scale, on a mass market scale, and for it not to think about where it was manufacturing, how it was treating its workforce, you know, Boohoo got called out very, very recently, and rightly so, you know, and yeah. and their and their share price dropped by what was it, a third or something, and didn't recover. I don't, I don't think it's recovered to this day, um, you know. And they, they will, I'm sure they will change. They might have been on a journey anyway, but they weren't on, they, they weren't all over that journey. If they were, yeah. But, but now you're going to get, you know, you talked about being called out earlier. You know, you're going to get, you're going to get spotted if you're not authentic. Well, that goes yeah. for businesses as well. You, you know, you you are not going to get away by manufacturing in a factory in Leicester and paying somebody three pound ten pence an hour. You are not going to get away from from working in a factory in Bangladesh uh, and 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 that and that factory being uh, the worst conditions. You know, somebody is going to catch you out nowadays. Yeah, I think the world is so transparent now because of like the internet and media is just all over the place all the time. And I think the only way that Topshop and places like that will keep going is by having to change because otherwise someone will come along who does the same products in a sustainable manner and people will just start shopping there because that's the way so many people's mindsets are changing now so for the, for the big companies out there if they don't change quickly someone is going to come and overtake them because you see how fast boohoo grew like it hasn't taken that long for it to become one of like the biggest brands in the, like fashion brands in the uk and that could definitely happen again with a more sustainable version of that. And it's and it is only a ma- and it is only a matter of time before um, technology. You know, at the moment, at the moment, you know, we've got one of the issues about that, that stops sustainable fast fashion is the fact that that we haven't found a way for human beings to earn enough. Um, to compete with fast fashion that's not sustainable. Yeah. But somebody will do something that's combining human endeavor with technology. It, 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 is, it is only a matter of time, as you say. And I don't think that time is, is a long way off. But then, you know, I, <laughs> we say that. And I bought my first, I bought the first Prius to come in the country in two, Toyota Prius two, 2003 yeah. to, to come in the country. 17 years later, we're still driving it, 280,000 miles. That's our, that's which is, which I'm really proud of that car. But then we, we, all the time we've been thinking, but we've got to buy an electric car because that's hybrid. We're, you know, that's only, we're still using petrol. Yeah. So we went out and we just got, we, we waited till we thought the perfect one came out, this thing called a Honda Re. Got it delivered two weeks ago. Been driving for the first time a, a wholly electric car. And oh my God, are we not ready as a country? So it's, it shows how things, you know, you, you it sh- the um, you know um, charging points broken every- broken everywhere. Um, going to right. towns with trying to drive to a town with where you can't even charge your car up because there aren't any that you can use. Yeah. And and so it, we say things moving quickly, but seventeen years from a hybrid electric car to still not being able to properly use one, um, we 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 better bloody start moving quicker. Yeah, so that segues us perfectly, actually, into um, the Good Business Festival. Um, we're going to be doing some work with you guys on the Good Business Festival, but could you um, describe 
where the eye like where what the purpose of the festival is well well the good business festival is you know what it says on the tin it's which it's about per profit comes from purpose and it's about purposeful business and it's about what business can give back to society and that has, that now is not a niche subject matter. You know, this is, this is, everybody is on that journey. And the whole thing is, this is the first world festival that wherever you are on the journey, whether you're just starting on it, whether you're a small business wanting to find out about it, or whether you're a giant like Patagonia who kind of has, has nailed it to, like, like yeah. nobody else seems to have nailed it <laughs> in the fashion industry. And so, we're, you know, and we're even, you know, we're even, talking to we want bp to be part of it whereas lots of these events before would have said we're not touching them with a barge pole because we know that everybody every business is going to be on that journey now and we want we want to become the world's gathering for it so the davos the south by southwest of of of, of business uh, and and we've been funded it's a not-for-profit and it's been funded by central government uh, as part and, and then the money's been given to the combined authority uh, liverpool city region to, as part of the leveling up agenda to create a world event in what is a, an amazing Liverpool is just an amazing place um, in an amazing regional British city and um, it's coming along swimmingly it's just um, we really Covid has helped because it, it's focused everybody on the importance of purpose uh, in business and, yeah. and people have really been called out where they haven't been purposeful whether it's been football clubs you know whether whether it's been you know whether it's been businesses what w- whatever whether it's been banks if you if you haven't come together and and shown that you care about people rather than just care about the bottom line and care and care about shareholder value then then you're going to get called out and and uh, it's just we're so, we're really i think for me it feels like it's felt like the early days at, of Red or Dead in the early days of Hemingway Design when we were doing the, the, our first housing that we knew we were onto something. We didn't know where it was going to take us, how far it was going to take us. And, and this, is a, 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 you know, this is a team that's half uh, public sector, so half the team work for Liverpool Council as part of their culture team and half, half works for Hemingway Design. And together, and, and I love that idea that there's a, a purpose-led um, private sector with the public sector, which by its very nature is purpose-led, that we've come together and we've, the, the team is so strong, so together. Um, and it just, you know, like, it reminds me, I'm a big football fan, um, Blackburn Rovers I'll, I'll, are, my, are my main team, but I also I do actually love what Liverpool are achieving. And it, remi- and it reminds me of, you know, a team at Blackburn Rovers when we when we won the Premiership back in the nineties, where you didn't know where it was going to take you. This, but you knew that there was a team who were absolutely on it, and and everything felt like it was like you you were going along together, and you knew that there was purpose at the end of this. And we won the Premiership, and and I think the same's just happened in Liverpool with, you know, with uh, with Klopp's leadership and and Liverpool, they brought the country along with them with a, a style of football and a and the smile on Mo Salah's face and and all of that all of that it, it just there's a real analogy and, and, and Red or Dead felt like that and, and, the, and as I said the early days of delivering housing at Hemingway Design felt like that that we were changing things just enough and, um, and this feels like that and, and, and we've, we've managed to get some of the biggest brands from around the world you know from from, from, from the super the, the super sustainable Patagonia to those who are you know 
on on the route, Mastercard, um, um, Coca Cola, down to you know down to loads and loads of small businesses who are a combination of wanting to learn more, but are also super sustainable. And um, the lineup's fantastic. We do Act One in in, in on October the eighth, and uh, and then Act Two in March. And I don't think I've been. I'm so energized. As you can probably tell, I'm really energized about the whole thing. And so, what's going to happen in Act One? We're going to look at. At business in the world through the lens of COVID, and um, and 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 we've got things like we start off with a film called WTF just happened, and we're we're we, um, we're, we're interviewing you know down Zoom or down down the likes of um, luminaries from all around the world, from from politicians to lead, to world leaders to people on the front line of the NHS, and 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 you know what basically making a film of what's happened. Then we discuss that. And throughout the day, we look at the impact of globalization. We look at the impact of COVID uh, on, on women, the, the, on women's work, working with Jude Kelly and Women of the World uh, Festival. We, we work with Sport England on the impact of, of, of COVID on sport. And, 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 and it goes, we, there's, there's no section of life that we, don't, that we don't touch. And we've got, you know, big names and, 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 and unheard of names to be discovered. It's live. It will go out from a, in front of a studio audience from a studio in Liverpool. There's different channels. So think of watching telly. You can pick different channels depending on what your subject matter and what your penchant is. Uh, and then it carries on live from Canada, live from Australia um, in, into the evening. And then it, and then it lives online. We, we, we really are doing things. It's, it's very um, outcomes led. So we've got things like the solution. Well, every, every single... Every single session, we we start off with a, this thing called a setup, where we set up the issue that we're talking about with the stats. Uh, we've got Ipsos Mori as a partner, looking at what the public think about about this, but getting public opinion, putting it up on screen, showing bits of news footage, and then we've got like stellar panels uh, of people and fantastic moderators like Krishnan Guru Murthy and Evan Davis, and I think we've got Asma Mamiya now. Uh, we're talking to her this morning, so we we've got great panelists who are used to dealing in you know making sure that there are outcomes at the end of interviews and then we've got the panel who we don't introduce the panel you you, you know you just their next their name rank and serial number only no pontification about what they've done or their history and then we have like 17 or 18 minutes of, of a debate and then a klaxon goes off called the action klaxon and and then for the last 10 minutes you know, there has to be outcomes. There has to be pledges, and there has to be when we when we return for Act Two in March. What are you going to have tried to have achieved in in those five months? And that'll be for every session. So there's nobody standing up there on, on doing like a TEDx, which for me is starting to sound a bit dated now. Where you can where you've got where you're talked without any questioning. You're in a discussion with people from a wide a diverse viewpoints on it you've got the best moderator in the business and you have to in the last 10 minutes when that klaxon goes off it's not like it's it's not like um rugby where you can carry on to finish what what the move that you're making it's football end and you get then onto and the extra time is where you where you make your where you make your pledges uh, and so yeah i'm 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 proud of all the kind of the way that it's and the way that it's been set up. The messaging behind it is exciting. Um, I think the brand is strong, um, and 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 it feel it feels fresh. And how much is this going to cost people? Nothing. Um, it's it's totally and utterly free. Um, I think we'll we'll ticket. 
October's totally and utterly free. We'll t- you can donate to good causes in Liverpool. So if you if, if you can afford it, we we urge you to to donate, and that'll all be clear online. Uh, but March will be ticketed. Uh, then it's a, a full city t- takeover of Liverpool. You know, it's a come to Liverpool for the whole week and the first week, the first week of March, and that will be a full-on festival. You know, we're le- we're, we're learning a lot from South by Southwest. We want it to be that kind of mixture yeah. of of fun and and seriousness, and yeah, I think it's going to be um, amazing and will help a lot of people. So, um, yeah, we're really excited to be a part of it. Um, so to end then, I know that um, you are a big sort of proponent of creativity and creative people. Um, and, I, and I know you've sort of said that there should be more creative people in, um, uh, in like public, um, in the public sector. Um, how important is um, creativity in business? Well, I, I genuinely believe that, that creativity belongs to everybody. There's no... You, 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 you don't have to be taught creative. You can be, you can go to, to college and, and, and learn elements of the creative industries. There are people within every business who are creative and it's how you bring it out. And I, I think there should be, you know, a, a director, of, you know, or a partner. In, well, not, it doesn't have to be a partner, but somebody who's on the board and somebody in the decision making of every business who thinks and and talks about creativity and not just about bottom line. And I think it's starting to happen. Um, the thing that we've got nowadays is proof that the creative industries and creativity generates, you know, generates GDP. Uh, it's the second biggest driver of the economy in the UK. It's the fastest growing export sector, or it, or it was until until COVID. Um, it's it's a, a, you know a, a massive employer, and so. But it's been a long time for business to not treat it like a Cinderella subject and, and think that it was, you know, oh, it's, you know, it's what it's what those people who aren't very bright at school do. You know, unfortunately, that, <laughs> you know, that has been that has been prevalent quite a, for, for quite a long time in society. Um, yeah. And it's still there to an extent. Yeah. Well, um, this has been amazing, Wayne. Thank you so much. I think we should probably do a part two at some point because I feel like we've only scratched the surface. Yeah. Um, But yeah, this has been amazing.